You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. Welcome back to the Art of Living Well podcast. This is session three of the BSEP free retreat from 2019. In this episode, Father Ian's talking about defeat the work of the enemy when you claim your authority as a child of God. So when we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will be able to defeat the work of the enemy. Listen to us talk for some practical suggestions and advice. Enjoy. I'm, I'm developing some material. I was brainstorming with Tim between the talks. And um, this next part I might embarrass my mom a little bit. Um, actually, are we, so are we missing anyone? Um, are we, look around your table. Are we missing folks? Because actually, maybe, maybe actually she'll be spared. I might just jump into the talk. I'll tell one story. So it's kind of funny. Um, we grew up in a military family, right? So a lot of people assume that dad is like the tough one in the family, right? Because that's the thing. Military families, dad, your dad's really tough. And actually, my mom was actually a whole lot tougher. Poor mom, just going to embarrass her. But so one of the funny stories is uh, my brother, when he was a little kid, he was playing sports. I can't remember exactly how he did because I was younger than him. But he hurt his arm playing sports or doing something where he hurt it really bad. And my mom's whole thing was like, suck it up. Like, don't give in to pain. Suck it up. So he was, he was complaining about it, not working. He said, look, you're going to use your arm. So she made him first use his arm to climb into bed. And then the next day he was at a basketball game. And my grandfather was like, uh, Marie, uh, it seems like his arm's really hurt. I think you should take him to the doctor. It's like, oh, okay, fine, I'll take him to the doctor. It's probably no big deal. So she took my brother to the doctor. The doctor was like, it's broken. And not only is it broken, but it looks like somebody like forced the kid to use it even when it was broken. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, um, so yeah, so there's plenty of stories like that um, growing up, growing up in an army family. Well, a joke around also, actually, can we turn the screen off completely? Um, how did we do it before when it was black? Yeah. Um, uh, well, no, because then remember it goes to sleep mode, and then we're back. Oh, okay. So, technical issues, man. It, it's, 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 it's a constant, man. Tech, the more technology we have, the more complications there are. Isn't it like Murphy's Law or something? Like what can go, go wrong will go wrong? Um, all right, give you a second. All right, there we go. So it's just, it's, it's the background because we're doing the video, so it's like one of those things where if you don't have a good background, it kind of destroys the video. But all right, let's, let's, let's say a little bit of a prayer. Let's try to transition back. Um, luckily, this afternoon, actually, we'll stay seated. Um, this afternoon session is going to actually be a lot lighter, a lot more inspirational, and hopefully motivational as we get into the last two keys of deliverance. But let's start with a prayer first. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just ask that you help us to recognize our authority as adopted sons and daughters, that we may claim that authority in our inheritance, and that, above all, that we may seek that happiness and flourishing, which is the possession of your saints. Help us to unleash your grace in our lives to let that grace flow out and pour out of us, that we may achieve the, the glory of the saints. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. 
Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one of the big things that I want, we're trying to do when we're, we're praying through these keys of deliverance and we're, we're connecting with our experience is in a lot of ways we're trying to overcome the negative thought patterns. We're trying to overcome the negativity in our lives. And, 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 and it's not just to overcome it by ignoring it, but trying to almost rewire our brains or rewire our thinking. Now, I'm not an expert in neurology or psychology, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, which is that we have the capacity through our own intentional efforts to rewire how things work inside in our brains. And it's not, it's, it's not dramatic, but over time, when we change our patterns of thinking, when we change our habits, it, it changes how our brain operates. Um, that's a real simple kind of introduction to it. But I've always been struck that it's fascinating that we can have, sometimes we can have very similar experiences, and how we interpret it can vary very greatly. So somebody might have a, a terrible experience, like a failure or a struggle, and yet, because of their resiliency, because of their acknowledgement of God's work or their inner strength, they're able to overcome it and not give in to fear and anxiety, whereas sometimes it can be the opposite. And I learned this point very dramatically when I was doing, um, I was doing a marriage prep with a couple. And, and as you might start to guess, um, based on how my talks have gone and what I deal with, that there's a sense that everything I do is somewhat connected with spiritual direction. So my marriage prep is actually kind of a little bit like spiritual direction. And what I normally do is I put them through three spiritual exercises and three meetings, and we have five meetings overall. But I put them through a series of spiritual exercises. And in one of them, one of the women was talking about a very painful memory she had. She remembered 9-11, was September 1st, uh, 9-11. And she remembered, September 11th, sorry. So, um... She remembered how after that they did a lot of drills in her school and how she was really upset and really afraid because of the fear of a terrorist threat. And it was funny because when she was talking about it, it occurred to me that one of my earliest memories was actually my time in Panama, which I alluded to earlier during the 89 invasion, where I actually saw off in the distance downtown Panama burn. And it's actually a very terrible time for a lot of people. It was a time of war and suffering. But the crazy thing was, to my mom's credit, believe it or not, for a little second, third grade Ian Van Heusen, it was actually the funnest, exciting time of my life. Believe it or not, it's kind of bizarre. I don't know what that says about me, but when I was a little kid, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. My school was a helicopter pad. We were like fighting enemies. It was like war. I always thought war would be cool because I was a little kid. But it was interesting, my, my mom took something that could have been incredibly traumatic and transformed it. And I think this is really the pattern of what happens in our lives. So I mentioned before in the previous prayers, I had that prayer where it's like, it's a classic, classic Catholic piety, which is we take the wounds of Christ and we hide our wounds in the wounds of Christ, or we take refuge in the wounds of Christ. And, and it's phrased a lot of different ways, but there's this connection with the wounds of Christ. And there's a fascinating dynamic. One of the things the saints would say is that the way they could tell Satan appearing to be Jesus from the resurrected Jesus when he would appear in visions is that they would ask the, they would ask the vision, they would say, show me your wounds. And if it wasn't Jesus, if it was Satan, he never had the wounds of Christ. That was the one thing that Satan couldn't conjure was the wounds of Christ. Whereas the resurrected Christ, when he appears, he always has his wounds. And it's a fascinating dynamic. He took what could be the darkest, deepest, darkest thing, 
God is humiliated. Think about that for a second. God is humiliated. He's brought low. He's made to suffer. He suffers a terrible death. And he takes that and it becomes a sign of glory. So that's the transformation that's going to start to take place. I was once talking with a woman in spiritual direction. And I said, I want you to imagine 10 years from now, everything you're going through, every pain you're experiencing. I want you to imagine that you've conquered this in 10 years. In 10 years, it's, you're at a place of freedom and you become like a light to other people. Like, just imagine that. Like, everything that you're suffering right now, everything you're going through, will make you better able to listen to others. It'll make you better able to walk with others, to to share what you have first received. That Christ will take your wounds and he'll let them shine with his glory. So we're always moving from Good Friday to the resurrection. And the reality is, we don't have to be slave to our negative experiences. We don't have to be a slave to our trauma. That's the message that we're trying to explain today, that we're about freedom, that we want to set hearts free for the sake of mission. So getting into this, it was interesting. So I mentioned before how I, I was walking with a woman. Um, actually, no, I didn't mention this particular story. So another story from spiritual direction. I was working with a woman once who was gripped by depression. She had a real hard time with depression. But when she came to me, she was like, I've been in a good mood for a while. I've actually had an uptick. We had one meeting where she was really dark, and then she got a little bit better, and we were talking. And I asked her, I said, well, in this moment of peace, why don't you, you know, go back to the, the, the darkness and maybe meditate on, a, I was walking her through the exercises where you meditate on hell, and you meditate on Lucifer and the fall of Adam and Eve. It was really interesting. It was a great insight for me because she said, I don't want to go back to that place of darkness. I'm afraid of the darkness. But I had an insight. I said to her, I said, I said, you know what I believe in this moment? It was insight I had. I said, right now in this moment, if you go back to that darkness on your own, if you confront it and you say, I will not be a slave of this, like I'm going to actively work against this, I bet you will conquer it. But if you wait for it to hit you, if you wait for the depression to come back, it's like then you're going to be weak. Then you're not going to be able to fight against it. And I came up with a metaphor from soccer, of all things. I was a soccer player as a kid. And if you ever know anything about soccer balls and hitting it with your head, if the ball hits you, you can get a concussion, right? So if you're just sitting there and you're not expecting the ball to hit you and it hits you, you can get a concussion, right? But if you hit the ball, like if you direct the ball, and you hit it on your own, and it's coming at you, and you, you direct it, you have a lot more power over it. And that's what I would say right now, is we're trying to hit the ball today. Instead of waiting for the ball to hit us again, waiting for the, the desolation, the thought trap, the trauma, whatever it might be, waiting for the darkness to return. No, we're going into the darkness, and we're fighting against it. So how do we do that? Well, we renounce the lies. We forgave people. Now what we're going to do today... And this, this, this third talk is we're going to claim our authority and we're going to let the Father speak blessings into our lives. We're going to let the Father speak his word, the word you've actually already heard, but you've never maybe actualized, the Beatitudes, or what other promises that scripture contains. He wants to make that active in your life. So that's what we're going to do in this, this third session. So starting off, Galatians 4, 1 through 11. So he's talking about this idea of what we'll call spiritual adoption, what's called spiritual adoption. And he says, I mean that as long as an heir is not of age, he is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. This takes a little bit of unpacking. So he says, 
although there, I mean that as long as the heir is not of age, he is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. So in the ancient world, we recognize, I think most of us recognize, the son, the oldest son, inherited everything of the father. The oldest son was the one who would, who would, who would take on the role of the head of the family. But what he's, the point he makes in the ancient world is that before the son is of age, before he's old enough to claim his authority, he's, he has the same rights as a slave in a certain regard. Even though he's the owner of everything, his position is not that much different. He has to obey the father, and he has to obey the authorities over him. So he doesn't have that freedom, and that's what he's building towards. But he's under the supervision of guardians and administrators until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were not of age, were enslaved to the elemental powers of the world. So St. Paul builds in this, that the Old Testament represents our spiritual childhood, where we're being trained in the ways of holiness. Now, I will say this. I think it's also developmental. See, when I see the Old Testament through the New Testament, there's kind of a development that happens in each one of our hearts. And you really think about it, you actually see it, I see it with college students, right? So there's an element in which somewhere in high school or college, we have to claim our authority. We have to to mature spiritually. Because when we're little kids, when we're younger, we resemble more ancient Israel, who needs discipline, who needs boundaries, who needs, and those things are good. They're they're needed for a time. Like remember what I talked about with St. Paul before, we were talking about his, his emphasis on discipline in the spiritual life and the law. And that was good for a time, perhaps, but it was incomplete. And in his case, it became perverted, it became twisted. But there's a sense that there's a stage of development. That all of us, we, you know, we, we maybe had that faith given by our parents, or if we were outside of it. There comes a point where we have to step up and say, this is my own. And of course, many of us are probably beyond that point. But we also have to claim our authority and claim our inheritance. And what does that mean? And I'll, I'll kind of unpack that a little bit more. So... Connected with this, St. Ignatius gives three grades of humility. And I think this really gets at the core of what our inheritance is. So the first grade of humility is is obedience to God's law. He says when we, we have the desire not to offend the law and not to commit a mortal sin. That's kind of like the foundation, the beginning. And so you see that with kids, right? They, they don't want to displease their parents if they're, if they're well socialized, if things are going well. They want, to, they want to appeal, they want the authority to think well of them. So there's a sense of wanting to, to not disobey God and obey his law. And that's a good foundation. But then he gets into the second grade of humility, which he describes it as, I would say, I would call it freedom or indifference, the way St. Ignatius recognized it. Not indifference as you might like think sometimes, but spiritual indifference, spiritual freedom, is when we prefer neither riches nor poverty, when we prefer neither the best nor the worst, when we can choose whatever is most conducive to our salvation and to our mission, when we're able to let go of our attachments and do what is best. But interestingly enough, that's the second grade of humility, right? That sounds like the heights of holiness, right? You have the freedom to to accept simplicity. You have the freedom to accept whatever it might be, even sufferings where you, can, you, know, you don't prefer the easy way or the hard way. You just prefer what God wants. But this is the mystical part. And to be honest with you, I think this could be misunderstood. I think it really has to be understood in solitude. There's a sense that it has to be spoken to our hearts in mystery. And that is to share in the sufferings of Christ. Because I know we've all seen examples where that gets perverted. 
And I mean, I, I think a lot of one particular situation. I won't get into who the person was, but they were, they were kind of they were a sour, negative person, and they had a loving side. The person had a loving side, but they always emphasized like the sufferings of Christ. But it wasn't a way that was freeing. It was kind of like this world is nothing but trouble and woe. And it's kind of like they had like a negative self-image and a negative image of the world. This suffering with Christ, this third grade of humility, is even deeper than that. I think it's, it's not just bad mental health. It's not just beating ourselves up. It's, there's something about it. It's a generous heart. It's an open heart. It's full, a heart full of faith, hope, and love, full of tenderness, full of joy, joy, happiness, absolutely. This third grade of humility is perfect happiness, perfect joy. And I'm going to come back to this a little bit more when we get into the Beatitudes. But do we, that's kind of the inheritance that we can walk, is to be other Christ. So imagine Christ on the cross, right? His moment of suffering. He has the power and the strength, power and strength, absolutely 100% on the cross. He has the power and strength to look at the people who are mocking him, who hate him, who are snaring, and he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He has the power and strength to say, I forgive you because I am in perfect control of this situation. Now, we may not be in perfect control of our lives and perfect control of our situations because we're not God, but we can share in the power of Christ, that we can dig deep and I can love the way Christ loves. That's what God wants for us. So, continuing. But when the fullness of time had come, we're back at Galatians. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to ransom those under the law so that we might receive adoption. As proof that you are children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, also an heir through God. Before I get into the Galatians, tell a little bit of a story. So one of the things, I don't know if it's fun, I don't know if I like it or I hate it, about my job, it's, it's one of those things, maybe I'm a little ambivalent right now about it, is fundraising. Like, I'm doing a lot with fundraising. And if you're an ECU alumni, I'm going to hit you up for money, guaranteed. I find out. There's a few I already know. I, there's a few people I got uh, lined up already in the room. Um, so I'm, I'm doing, like, I'm in continual fundraising mode for ECU, trying to get the focus missionaries. And so by all coincidence, you got to love how God does this. One of my good friends from seminary, who left and became a Dominican, guess what his job is these days? He's doing fundraising. He was doing fundraising for a university. He was doing fundraising now for a seminary out in San Francisco. He's in the fundraising world. So it's kind of fun because we can talk about fundraising, which is kind of business related, but we both have a spiritual background that we try to integrate our spirituality and how do we do fundraising. So I was talking with him, and he was talking about one of his frustrations at one of his jobs. I won't say which job it was. It wasn't the, 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 the seminary. But he said he was talking with the leader of the organization. And he had done all of his job as the fundraiser, which is a lot of times they make connections. They find out what you like. They find out what your favorite food is. They find out, you know, when your children are, how your children are doing. So they invest a lot of time in you. And then they figure out how much the, the person could ask, like how much the leader of the organization could ask. That's kind of a lot what fundraisers do. So he, he had been preparing this person for a, a big offer. He said, look, this is going to be a big ask. And, and to give you a sense, I'm not sure if it was exactly a million dollars, but it was something like a million dollars. So when they're doing those asks, you got to imagine they prepare like heck for those, right? They prepare like crazy. So he's like telling the, telling the president, it was the president of the organization, he said, look, you're going to go in there and you're going to ask him for a million dollars. 
Guaranteed, this person is going to give you a million dollars. You just have to go in there and you have to ask for it. So guess what the president does? He goes in there and he waffles. And instead of coming out with a million dollars, let's just say hypothetically, it was this ridiculous, he comes out with like $10,000. And the, the funder's like, I can't, like, you blew this. Like, why didn't you ask for a million dollars? And of course he can't say that to the president, but that's what he's thinking. And the, the reality is, what I'm getting at, is that's precisely how we are in our relationship with God, right? So right now, there's a lot of people, I, I just preached on this last weekend, it's something I'm really believing. There's a lot of people, like if God appeared to them right now and said, what do you most want? Like, what's the desire of your heart? And they'd be like, uh, can you pay off my student loans? <laughs> oh, crap. Like, can you like give me a million dollars? Like, I, 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 you know, I need to pay off my bills or I, I require good health. It's like, no, like, God wants something so much bigger for you. So the question is, well, what is that biggerness? What is that bigness? What is that greatness that God wants for your life? And to get at this, we can look at the Old Testament. So we can look at somebody who really fails with this, King Ahaz. Now, most of you probably don't know who King Ahaz is. Um, his name's not like super popular precisely because he's not the best king in the Old Testament. So the prophet, I believe it's Isaiah, because this is where actually we get the prophecy of the virgin birth. Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says, ask the Lord for whatever you want. Like, ask the Lord. Make it deep as the ocean. The Lord will give you your heart's desire. And King Ahaz is like, I, ju I just don't know. Like, I don't even know what to ask for. And that's like tough. Like, there's asking for too little. And then there's like, well, what do I really ask for? And so what the saints would say, the saints would say we, we shouldn't ask for visions and locutions, right? So they talk about prayer. So sometimes people get really caught up in private revelations. Like they, they run after the greatest, the next big revelation, private revelation here. I would love to see Jesus kind of like, it'd be really cool if like Jesus appeared to me and kind of talked to me directly. That's actually not what the saints say we should ask for. A better way to ask, a better way to understand what we should ask for is to look at King Solomon. A few of you are probably already nodding your head a little bit. You're like, you see where this is going, right? So God appears to King Solomon. He says, ask whatever you want. And what does King Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom. And God says, because you ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything else in turn. And now maybe we shouldn't be asking, for, we, we shouldn't expect that we're going to have the riches and the power of Solomon, but we should be asking for wisdom. But let's unpack this a little bit. What exactly is wisdom according to the saints and to the tradition? It's a little bit of an ineffable reality, right? So divine wisdom is, of course, not just human wisdom, divine wisdom, is something a little bit greater like, than just book knowledge, right? It's actually something that you can't really create a strict definition. Well, you can create a definition of, but it doesn't get at the essence of what wisdom is. And so what St. Thomas Aquinas says wisdom is, it's the fruit of love, divine love, the experience of love. But it's, it's not just the experience of love like I feel warm fuzzies and that's wisdom. No, it's when I'm connected with God's presence, when I feel that presence, not by my own will, but because God shows himself to me, when I connect with his love and his presence. It's like that silence, that intuitive connection with God teaches us all of the mysteries, things that go beyond our concepts, beyond book knowledge, beyond anything you can learn. There's a certain kind of knowledge that's only the fruit of experience. We, we know that, right? Like, the wise judge is the one who has, who's learned from experience. So the saint is the one who has learned from their experience of God. 
That's what wisdom is. So to seek that. Another way of putting it, and I'm going to get into this more, is contemplation. So, um, actually I'll get into that a little bit now. So getting into, let's see where we're at. Yeah, we're, we're doing good on time. So contemplation, we see it in the scriptures, and we see it, um, it's, it's, in, it's really interesting because it's really subtle in the scriptures, and it's really the saints that draw it out. But one of the places I would point you to in the Old Testament is the idea of the Sabbath rest. Like, what exactly is the Sabbath rest? Is it just like not working? Because when you really think about it, I mean, I, I had so many misunderstandings about that when I was a kid, right? Like, when we say we're supposed to rest on Sunday, like we're all supposed to lay on a couch? Well, well, well no. So what exactly is the Sabbath rest? So we're kind of going to flesh that out as we get into the Beatitudes. So what I would say to kind of unpack this, the fruit of what the Lord wants to pour into your life. So we talked about claiming our authority. So we need to claim our authority and say, you know, I'm a child of God. Like I have an inheritance. Like God wants to do this in my life. And that's what we're going to be affirming in the next section. Then what we're going to want to do is hear the Father's blessings. What does he want to pour into our lives? After we've acclaimed our authority and our inheritance, what does he want to pour into us? And I would say the Beatitudes are the pattern of that. We could also look to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but because of time and not wanting to throw a whole bunch of lists at people, we'll just focus on the Beatitudes. So, the first Beatitude. So, of course, I'm going to use the Beatitudes from Matthew's Gospel. They're a little bit more systematic. Um, We could have a long conversation about Luke's Gospel. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Luke is kind of, I don't want to say sloppy, because it's the Word of God. It's like more... So the words God is not sloppy, but it's like more in the field. Like there's something like Luke's in in Jesus and Luke's gospel is like interacting with people. Where in Matthew, it's like he's pulled apart and he's teaching, like he's giving a lecture. And that's the, the quality of Matthew's Beatitudes. They're more systematic. So it's Matthew chapter five. So it goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To unpack this a little bit. One of the great, great gifts I had, was one of the greater joys of my middle school, was one time I was into the World Cup. It was probably like 94, 94, 95. I was a little kid, um, and I was into the World Cup a lot. And my mom got me this soccer watch. And it, I really loved it. It had a leather band. I thought it was the coolest, the greatest thing in the world. But unknown to me, like, it wasn't, it wasn't actually that expensive. But you know, you know how kids do that? Like, you give them something, it may not even be that expensive, but, like, they're so dang excited about it, right? Like, it can be the littlest thing in the world. Like, even, like, little, like, when I was a teacher, and you'd give kids candy or, like, stickers. Like, why are stickers exciting? I know, like, as an adult, I don't get that. But, like, to kids, it's, like, the greatest dang thing in the world. I got a sticker, like, a little piece of plastic put on a piece of paper. So I got this watch, and I was so excited about it until, unfortunately, it wasn't an expensive watch, and so I wore it out in the rain, and it got ruined. And my mom was like, she, she said to me something that struck, stuck with me as a kid. It's funny, of all the things I remember, I remember her saying this. She said, if I had known how much you would love it, I would have gotten you a nicer watch. But I often think about that, like, that poor in spirit. And we connect it with being childlike. Like, do you delight in the simple things? And that's, when you're set free from the fear, the anxiety, 
What is the kind of happiness the Lord wants to give you? Is where you're so poor in spirit that you get excited by like a sticker. But I mean, not a sticker because you're not a kid. But something like that. Like something so small and insignificant just delights you because you're so lowly and humble. Not in the sense that you beat yourself up or there's negative connotations. You just delight in simplicity. You just delight in the Lord and those little things. Because you'd be surprised. People who are bound, people with lots of struggles, struggle to delight in little things. Absolutely. So we delight in little things. Next, speaking of little, going back to contemplation. Now, th- this is going to be a good way to understand contemplation and this kind of littleness of the Holy Spirit. So it's 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. And it's, you're going to know this story and you're going to be like, it's going to click a little bit. Um, so then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain. So he's talking to the prophet and it's Elijah. Stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will pass by. So remember, this, this story comes where Elijah is fleeing from being persecuted. He's, he's going to be killed if he goes back to Israel. He's on the run. He's fleeing. And the Lord reveals himself. And it's so beautiful how he reveals himself. There was a strong and violent wind rending the mountains and crushing rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And you've got to ask yourselves, how much do we look for the Lord in the wind, right? We were looking for big, dramatic, huge emotions, huge displays, like huge rock concert type feel. And those things aren't, aren't necessarily bad, but the Lord is not in the wind, right? After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Think of that, big, dramatic Flashes of lightning. No, that's not where the Lord is to be found. This deeper wisdom that we're seeking is something much quieter. But the Lord was not in the fire. Then, then there, after the earthquake, fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fi- fire, a, sil- a light, silent sound. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? So, that's awesome, right? It said that he spoke to the, the Lord spoke to him in a quiet, whispering voice. That's what contemplation is. When we're no longer bound by fear, when our emotions are cooled, not in the sense of like we don't have emotions, but when they're brought orderly, when our, our love is, 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 is pure, when our heart is open, when our hatred is for sin, and, and our anger is, is, is under the rule of reason, when we enter into silence, the Lord speaks to us in that whispering voice. And that's the gift of contemplation. It's what they often call in the catechism an imageless, wordless resting in the Lord. And it was so funny. I was doing a spiritual direction once. And um, this, this woman I was, I was advising, I felt like she was really called to contemplation. I felt like the next step she needed to take in her spiritual life was understanding the gift of contemplation. And she, she very much loved prayer. And she loved talking about her inspirations, and how the Lord was speaking to her. And those things were good, but I was like, I think there's something deeper that... And so I talked with her about contemplation, and I talked to her about this quiet whispering sound and this resting in the Lord. And then she came back to me. She said something she really is interesting. She said, I didn't realize how precious of a gift that was until you taught me. She said, before, I'd always looked for God, like in these inspirations and for all these imageries and all of that. And that stuff is good. But she's like, I just realized how much better it is to just sit and rest with the Lord and to be with the Lord in contemplation. And like, how much greater of a gift that is. 
And so that's, that's precisely what we're working towards. Um, they, they say in the catechism, if you look up contemplation in the catechism, they, they talk about the, the, the village of ours, St. John Vianney, a peasant. They asked him once, I, I forget who asked him, they asked him about going into the church. They say, what do you do when you go into the church? And he said, I look at him and he looks at me. Like that was how he described his prayer life. I look at him and he looks at me. So the next part. Um, Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. A really interesting story. I was working with somebody once, and even my own. So I'll actually tell my own story first. So how do I put this? It's like my first assignment, my beginning of priesthood, was both exciting, stressful, and profoundly disappointing. It was a weird combination of things, and maybe I'm revealing a little too much, but everything went great in terms of my priesthood, which then caused a lot of problems, to put it. It was like, it was like the better I did as a priest, the more I upset a few certain people in my life, and the more of a problem they became in my life. And it's like that jealousy and that hatred was really there. And I really confronted for what the second time seemed to be like somebody who really didn't, like, hated me. And, of course, they were an authority figure, so that bothered me, right? That I couldn't, I couldn't win the approval of the authority figure. In the midst of that, my prayer had been deep. My relationship with the Lord had been well. But I realized something. I was like, you know, I haven't cried in a long time. Like, I haven't cried. Like, and I was reading the Desert Fathers, and they talk about tears. And they talk about that gift of tears. And they talk about the different kinds of tears, like the tears of despair versus the tears of contemplation versus spiritual tears. I was like, man, I really want that. But it's like I could feel because of my anger and my hatred and the negativity in my life, it was just kind of drying up. So I was like, what's going on here? So then I came to my second assignment. And when I arrived, there was a big sign on, on the front that said, Welcome Father Ian. I was like, oh my goodness. Like the, my last assignment, there had been no sign. Like nobody had really said welcome at all. Um, believe it or not. And they didn't really say goodbye either, but that's... <laughs> a few people did. There, a few parts, but like, yeah, never mind. Um, so... I was like, holy cow. And then they like, took me out to lunch and like, we're so excited to have you. And like, they gave me gifts. And, and then there was just a series of events where like the, the parish, my second parish, they just like opened their hearts to me. They just loved me from the day one. And, and I started to cry a lot. I was like, for the first time, I was like, it opened a floodgate. And I realized that like, when we're bound to negativity, like when we're suffering, like sometimes it can be like the, those tears are like, like we can't cry. We can't unleash those tears and that's what blessed are those who mourn because the saints who talk about the response to evil is mourning our hearts shouldn't be hardened and that doesn't mean that we give in to despair so that's the thing that this is a happiness like this is freeing like when you realize and you mourn that there's evil in the world and when you connect with that it can open such tenderness if it's the work of the holy spirit and i'm not talking about despair i'm not talking about depression so this is a kind of happiness a happy tears, but also a sad tears that opens us to the tenderness of God. So blessed are those who mourn. So I want to flip through a little bit. So there's blessed are those who meek, or those who are, blessed are they who are meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And we're going to pray through these. 
you can, you can give like, I think some people will actually break up the Beatitudes and give like a talk on each one. So we could really, you can always go deeper with the Beatitudes. What I, I want to do is I want to talk about the blessed or the clean of heart or the pure of heart. I hate when it says clean of heart. I like pure of heart. For they will see God. So St. John Cashin, the Desert Fathers, he has a great wisdom. He says, we all have an immediate goal, a prox- proximate goal is what I call it, and we have an ultimate goal. So keeping before our gaze, what is our immediate goal and what is our ultimate goal? So our ultimate goal is heaven. That's what St. John Cashin gets into. He's, it's clear, it's heaven, right? So we're, 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 gonna, we're called to be with God for all eternity, to dwell with him in heaven. Our more immediate goal, St. John Cashin says, he ties with this beatitude, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So what is purity of heart? The way I would describe it, building on St. John Cash and my knowledge of the tradition, is when you've come to taste that stillness of the Lord, when you've come to recognize that still presence, and you hear that whispering sound, you start to understand everything in relation to it. You start to understand, and then when you see that whispering tiny sound, that, that, that singular place of God's dwelling within, the work of the Holy Spirit, then the chaos within your own heart becomes even louder. But then in time, as you listen, instead of the chaos within, you listen to that still presence, more and more, that stillness starts to dwell within your heart. So what you could do is, is the question is throughout the day, and this isn't something we can just do by an act of the will, but can we keep our eyes focused on that gentle, still point of God's presence? Can we connect with that still whispering voice throughout our day? So when you're out driving and somebody cuts you off... (laughs) Can you like connect with the still presence or do you like flip them off? And then you find out it's Father Ian because I drive really slow. And everybody in Greenville is finding this out because every now and then they're like, Father, uh, I was getting really angry. And actually nobody to this day has said it was me that got them angry. But I think at least a few times because people are always like honking at me and because I'm, I'm chill. I'm, I'm connected to that still point, right? I'm still presence. I'm relaxed. All right. So. Continuing on. So there's the rest of the Beatitudes. There's blessed are the, per- the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And, um, and blessed are the you when they insult you and persecute you. So I, again, I, we can unpack all these for, for days. And it's something you can unpack for the rest of your life. I meditate constantly on the Beatitudes. But what I want to leave you with is one idea I've been playing with. When it comes to this, the fifth key of deliverance, the Father's blessings. I do believe in a prosperity gospel. Um, but I don't believe, like the prosperity gospel I believe in is not a prosperity gospel of things, but spiritual prosperity. Like God wants spiritual prosperity in your life. That is, he doesn't care about your watch or your phone or your car. I mean, he cares about it in a certain regard because he cares about everything. But when he says, I want to pour blessings into your life, it's not that he wants to give you more stuff. What he wants to do is he wants to pour spiritual blessings into your life. He wants to pour these, these beatitudes. He wants to pour the gifts of the Holy Spirit into your lives. And yes, that will make you better at your job. That'll make you better as a husband, a wife, as a worker, whatever it might be. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be rich or you're going to be powerful. See, spiritual prosperity takes everything you have and makes it better. So in your position in life, it makes you more content with the things you have. So that's what the Beatitudes is. It's a spiritual prosperity gospel. So I do believe in a prosperity gospel, 
but not according to the flesh, not according to the things of this world. So the question then becomes, do you believe in that spiritual prosperity? Like, do you believe that God wants to activate that in your life? And if you don't believe that, try to pray for the desire to believe for that. Pray for the grace to believe that. 